It is great to be back with you. I always enjoy coming to Claygate. I've been coming since 2002. This year is a special year for us. We'll move on to our third vicar. <laughs> it's a joy, you see, to know that the partnership we have is with you as a church. Vicars come and go, you know. <laughs> but we're partnering. We sense the partnership is with you. And we're so grateful to you for your friendship, for your love, for your support, for your prayers over these many years. And look forward to our partnership growing and continuing as time goes on. Now, first of all, I want you to think of a situation where you have got experience of waiting in expectation. Waiting in expectation. Not just waiting. We've all got experience of waiting. Anybody who lives in this part of England knows about waiting in traffic queues. Anybody who has stood on a platform with all the other commuters knows about waiting for the train to turn up or waiting for the weekend to come. I'm not talking about that kind of waiting. I'm talking about waiting for a promised person to come. Can you think of one of those? I thought of two examples. The first is very familiar to us in our modern internet shopping generation, you know, where you buy these great deals online. You probably went to the store and looked at everything and touched them, but you know, I'm going to go online, I'm going to buy the same thing cheaper. And you order it, and you get this really, really helpful message. We are going to deliver your parcel between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on any given day. Well, what use is that? I've got to wait in all day, not knowing when this promised delivery is going to take place. And you're terrified as you're waiting in for the parcel. You don't go out and buy a pint of milk, because you know if you go out, they're going to arrive on that moment that you're not there, and you're going to be left with one of those awful cards that says, you need to come to this parcel office in the middle of nowhere that no one can ever find and pick up your parcel. Or you can't go outside to hang the washing. You're all, you've got to be ready, waiting, always, constantly looking and waiting for that delivery to come. The second example of waiting and expectation, which is only familiar, I think, to those parents of older teenagers, Anna, not anyone of your age, older teenagers or young adults who live at home, you know, when you've told them, you can go to the party, but you must be back at midnight or 11 o'clock or whatever time you choose. Or as you've got adults in your home, mum, dad, I'm going out tonight, I'll be back about one. No problem. We'll let them grow up. So we'll happily have our evening together, we'll entrust our children, and we, we, won't, we won't wait up for them. We'll go to bed at our normal time. But every parent knows that they're not going to go to sleep, are they, until they hear that front door go. And they're going to look at the time and make sure it's on time. You're going to wait with expectation for your child to come home. And I used to say, my mother would do that till I was like 25 years old. She would still be listening. I can't rest until the person has come. The passage that we've read together this morning is actually two stories, two parables that have the same kind of theme. It's the theme of a returning master. And the context of the parable is actually quite culturally removed from us. It sounds familiar. We know about wedding banquets and things like that. But because the culture is kind of a Palestinian first century culture, we can miss certain things in the story unless we read it carefully. 
Because actually, there's some very surprising elements in this story. Because of its familiarity, we can, we can miss it. The, the basic theme of both stories is the same, that you're to be ready and watching and waiting for this return of the master. We're going to look at both stories in turn under two themes. The first one, being watchful, being the focus. Being watchful. And the second, being faithful. So look at the first story, verse 35 to 40. Being watchful. What we see in this story is a scene where the master of the house goes out to a wedding banquet. And it's an evening reception, which is why they've got to get their lamps ready. And the servants are going to be staying at home Waiting his return. Simple. Now servants, we don't know much about them in our culture, but servants are expected to be ready and waiting for their master's return whenever he comes. That's your job. It's not even your job, it's your life. You are to be ready for your master, to instantly wait upon him when he returns. And so we read at the beginning, verse 35, be dressed, ready for service, And keep your lamps burning. And the reason is so that when he returns and knocks on the door, they can immediately open the door for him. The Bible tells us the servants who are alert and watching for the master when he comes, actually the Bible says are blessed. Our version that we read says it will be good for those servants. The word used there is the same word blessed. Blessed are those servants who are found watchful and waiting. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about being dressed as a servant. Because you can read this, be dressed ready for service. Does it mean, servants, don't put your pajamas on because the master will be coming back, you need to be in your clothes? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. This, this translation, be dressed, is a helpful modernization of an old English expression in the King James Version that says, gird up your loins. Gird up your loins, it says in the King James Version, which makes no sense to any of us at all. Gird up your loins. Be dressed ready for service. Girding is the act of tying a girdle or a belt around your waist. You can imagine these guys are wearing these long Middle Eastern robes, yeah, that are nice and cool to wear. And they, when you're not a servant, when you're just a, a normal guy or a master, your, your robes are flowing and you move with dignity, and grace. When you're a servant, you're going to be active and busy. You've got to hitch up your robe and tie it tight around your waist with a girdle so that you are ready to act. All servants would be roped and girded up. And that's what it means. Being dressed ready for service is make sure you're belted, your skirts are hitched up, as it were, so you can move and be active in your service. Gird up your loins. Everyone wore robes in those days, but only the servants would be constantly girded, constantly ready. It was a sign of being a servant to have a rope belted around your waist. Masters and leaders didn't have those. They stayed in their flowing robes because they weren't doing any menial labor. We're those who are to be served, not those who are going to do the serving. There's a clear distinction between the two groups. And this being prepared picture continues in the second half of that verse, but having your lamp burning. Again, that's like a bit culturally removed from us, but it takes a lot of work to maintain a light. 
It's very difficult if your light's gone out and it's dark to, to, to reignite it. And you remember a parallel story that Jesus tells about the foolish bridesmaids who run out of oil? Do you remember that one? You've got to have your supply of oil. You've got to have your wick nicely prepared and your, everything ready. Keep your lamp burning. It takes work. It takes maintenance. You can't just turn an electric switch on and there's your light. You need to be ready. You need to be ready, dressed, and ready with your lamp burning because you don't know when this master is going to return. So when you get that kind of cultural background, you think, well, it's not difficult to understand, is it, what the parable means? Everybody who's an employer, anyone who's a master would get it. We want our people, our employees, our staff to always be ready and watchful to serve. We know how frustrating it can be to go to the supermarket, or not so much a supermarket, but one of those kind of corner shops, and there's two shop assistants chatting to each other. And you're waiting to be served. You're chatting away to each other, paying you no attention. You're like, I expect you to be waiting and ready to serve. It's frustrating. All servants need to be ready. So is it just telling us, be ready, be ready to serve? There's a jaw-dropping shock element to this parable that Jesus is about to get into. And we can miss it. A jaw-dropping, stunning, countercultural, tumultuous shock. And as I was preparing this message, it struck me this shock that you're about to hear fits in entirely with your vision statement and your verse as a church. It fits in entirely with what you are um, focusing on as a community this year. Look what happens when the master returns. First of all, do you not think it's a bit weird that he knocks on his own door? Who knocks on their own door? Why is he knocking on his door? You don't knock in even that culture. You would call out. You call out to say, I'm home. Why is he knocking? What's he doing? Calling out is the custom. In fact, why has the master left the wedding banquet? The word used for him returning is better translated as withdrawing from the wedding banquet. There's a sense that this master has withdrawn from the wedding banquet early. He has left the banquet, to return home. And he makes his way home, and rather than shout out in a loud voice and wake up the whole house, he just taps quite quietly on the door because he knows that a waiting, prepared, ready servant is going to hear that. They're going to hear that gentle tap, and they're going to open the door and respond. And then this incredible thing happens. The master comes in, and what does he do? What does he do, this master? He girds up his loins. The master himself dresses himself to serve. He dresses himself to serve. Takes the posture of a servant. Has his servants recline at the table. And he himself serves them. The shock that that would have had on the first hearers of this parable can't be overstated. It turns culture on its head. To have the master serve the servants, to have the powerful serve the powerless, to have those in positions of authority serve the weak, to have those in positions of wealth serve the poor. This is the subversive nature of the gospel. 
It's a reversal of the normal that we're all used to. And it's exactly what Jesus himself did. In that upper room, when Jesus took a towel and girded up his robes with a towel and knelt at the feet of his disciples and washed the muck and the grime from between their toes, Peter's reaction was, whoa, no way are you washing my feet, master. This does not happen. And Jesus tells him, do you understand what I've done for you? That's what he says to them after he's he's done it. Do you understand what I have done for you? As I have loved you, Jesus says, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Your verse for the year. By this all men will know if you love one another. This is who Jesus is. The servant king. The great master. The one through whom all things were made. Kneeling at your feet and washing the grime from between your toes. In fact, far more than that, this almighty God incarnate in Christ Jesus coming and taking on himself all the filth of our sin and dying the despised, cursed death of a criminal for you, for me. This is the level of love, of sacrifice, of service that the master shows his servants, his people. It's a beautiful parable with a unique meaning. The master has come to serve. The master didn't send a waiter to serve. The master himself stoops down and serves us and serves us. Those who have such a master are truly blessed. That's what this It will be good for those who are waiting means. Sometimes you can read that. It will be good for those who are waiting as if you have to be waiting in order to be blessed. And we so want to think that way because that's religion. I must do this and then I'll be blessed. And that's not what the Bible or the gospel teaches. The blessedness of those who have such a master is our present condition. That's what we have By grace, you are blessed to have such a master. You don't act faithfully to earn the blessedness. You are blessed, and so your actions are an expression of who you are. Blessed to know the master who serves. We are to be watchful for this master. We are also to be faithful. Look at the second story. Peter's question is like a bridge between the two parables. And Peter's basically saying, Lord, is this parable for us 12 disciples? Or is it for all God's people? Is it for every member of the household of God? Who are you telling this to? And Jesus goes on then to talk about a particular responsibility that the disciples and leaders and people in spiritual authority have. Don't let this be an excuse now for you to think it's only for the vicar or the staff team or the PCC. Because every one of us has spiritual authority, spiritual responsibility in our homes, in our communities. So you can't just switch off now and say, he's talking only to leaders. 
He is talking to leaders, but all of us have a calling, a responsibility to lead at some level. The parable applies also to us. And in this nuanced story, the master is putting some servants in a position of responsibility while he's away. And in the parable, they've got to distribute food to the servants at the right time. The master, when he returns, expects these servants to be serving faithfully. He wants the servants to always have one eye on his return, but whilst they're dealing with the practical concerns of each day in a faithful way. He doesn't want them to be those people who are kind of just chilling out, taking it easy, looking for the dust on the horizon. Oh, he's coming, quick, let's get back to work. You know, when you've got that kind of boss, when the boss is in the office, everyone works really hard. And when he's not there, you kind of kick back a little bit, but somebody keeps an eye out for when the boss is coming. Not that, Jesus says. No, no, no. Be ready, be watchful, but be faithful as you keep an eye on his promised return. What will these servants occupy themselves with while the master's away? That's the question. What will they do? Will they occupy themselves entirely with the master's business as they were instructed to do and be faithful as they wait for his coming? Or will they use his delay to indulge themselves, wasting time and missing opportunities to serve? That's the tension that the, parallel, that the parable sets up. And you and I live in this tension. We live in this between times, between the first coming of Jesus at his incarnation and the second coming of Jesus, which the parable is looking to, this promised return of the master. Because Jesus promised that he was going to return again in glory and every eye would see him and he would come. And we are to look forward to that day. We are to fix our eyes upon that promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, in all his splendor. He's coming to establish his kingdom. He's coming to establish the kingdom of righteousness and truth and justice. A kingdom where there'll be no more sickness and no more death and no more sin and no more persecution and no more trafficking and no more hunger and no, none of it. It will be gone. Because the master is going to return. And we have the privilege, as we wait, of seeing signs of that incoming kingdom. That's what community is. That's what we are as a body here. We are those who see signs of the future kingdom present now. Oh, it's just a glimpse. Often it's just a small imitation of the reality that's coming but they're encouraging signs, signs of people having some experience of healing, signs of people coming with a burden to do something about the injustice in the world, wanting to make a difference. We're to be faithful and act while we wait and watch for the second coming. But so many of us slip into that same attitude of thought that the Apostle Peter writes in his letter where he talks about scoffers saying, where is this coming that he promised? I mean, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do we have any real expectation of his promised return? We can so easily just fall into the trap of this foolish manager and say, 
he's taken a long time to come. Do you know what? I'll just kick back a little bit, take it easy. I'll take my eye, my eye off the ball, and I'll just have a little bit of that sense of self-indulgence that the manager speaks about, the master talks about, and neglect our responsibility to be a loving community, a community who serve each other and serve our wider community who are faithful to what the master has entrusted to us. Well, if you're one of those people, like me actually, who often forgets to think about the second coming of Jesus, seems a long way off, seems a bit unreal, then this parable is timely for you. Because you need to ask yourself, I think, as I ask myself, am I waiting and living in expectation of his certain return? If he returned tonight, how would he find me? Dressed and ready? With my lamp burning? Or flat out on the sofa, in the dark, with a glass of whiskey by my side? How will he find me? You know, if we knew exactly when he was coming, you, oh, you'd be sure you'd be ready, wouldn't you? If you knew he was coming, you'd make sure everything was in order. You know, when we lived in northwest China, I used to remark on the fact that every time I went to the mosque, the courtyard all day was full of men with grey hair and beards. Where are all the young men? They're at work. Yeah, but in the, it's in the evening. Where are the young men at the five required prayer times? Where are the young men? They're at work. They're busy. Yeah, but in the evening they're not busy. In the morning they're not busy. And there are some young men. Why is it only the older men who are present? And after I got to know some of the imams, the leaders of the mosques very well, they told me, it's not just because the young men are busy. It's because as we get older, we know that our time on earth is drawing short and we're going to meet the judge at some point. So we're trying to get as much credit in as we can before that time comes. That's in their worldview. You've got to get a lot of positive things happening. So they start to go to mosque more and more often the older they get. They think, we don't know, we don't know when that time of his coming is, if you like, but we know it's getting nearer as we get close to death. There's a fear that he's motivating them. But you and I need to think about the same thing. You know, be under no illusion. The Lord Jesus might return today. He might not return until after you yourself have died. But on the day of your death, which you don't know when that is either, you will face him. And for you, that's the day of his coming. So you don't want to be messing around with this and thinking, oh, well, he's not going to come back for a few decades yet, you know. He could come back for you tonight. We know that. We need to be ready so I want to ask you then, as a loving community, waiting together for the coming of the Master, let me just gently ask you, and I'm asking myself the same question, what is it that you're focusing your eyes on? Where are you focused today? What is it that you get out of bed for in the morning, if you like? Are your eyes, are our eyes fixed on Jesus' kingdom? Or are our eyes fixed on this world and what I can make for myself out of it? Where are we investing the best of our time and the best of our resources? Are we investing them in the things that will last? Or are we actually investing the best that we've got in things that will not stand the test of time? So what kind of community then is Jesus calling us to be as we live in the days between his comings? We're to live in expectation of his coming, to talk about it, to encourage each other, 
that the day is coming when the king returns and the kingdom comes in in fullness. So let's be found ready. So we're living in expectation, but we're living faithfully as we wait. We're serving one another the way he served us. We're loving each other the way he loved us and with the love that he gives us. We're faithful with what he has entrusted to us. Don't remember what he says at the end of the parable there. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Friends, we live in a culture that's received much. May we be faithful with that which he has entrusted to us. And may we be a community that's centered on mutual love. Because that is what it is that people see. That's what people see. That's what causes most Muslims to come to Christ, actually. In all the survey, the research that's been done, Muslims come to Christ because somebody Christian loved them. And they saw this unconditional love. Not love because they were attending meetings. Not love because of what the Muslim did. Not love for any other reason but that it's love that the Father has given us for you. And we show you this love unconditionally. Let's be a loving community. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another.